Ramble. My dog Mango has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair. Okay, she's fuzzy only half the time. And she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had known about Spot Pet a few years back. It would have just eased so much of that stress. Our partner, Spot Pet Insurance, is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Because with Spot Pet Insurance, you can get up to 90% cash back on eligible vet bills. Our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times, and we need to be there for them too. Go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit spotpet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductibles, coinsurance, benefit limits, and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Welcome to this week's episode of Spooktober True Crime. Guys, this is, this one's a weird one. This one is kind of crazy, but we're going to start not with the crime itself, but with a very, very interesting question. And this one is the question of, have you ever thought, and I know if you guys are in a relationship that you have thought about this, you have thought about the answer long and hard. Maybe it's been years now since you've been thinking about the answer, but I know for a fact, if you're in a relationship that is even remotely similar to mine, you have thought about how to get away with the perfect murder. (laughs) I kid you not. I don't know what it is. I think maybe it's because it's quarantine. Also, this sounds like an ad for relationship counseling and it's not, but it really, really should be because quarantine has made us fight about things that are so beyond dumb. The other day, my fiance made me cry because he called me a muggle. He didn't even call me a mudblood. He called me a muggle and I got so offended and I started busting out crying. I mean, I don't know what kind of day that was, but that was that was a day indeed hmm. yeah so <laughs> and then we start thinking about how to get away with murder <laughs> exactly precisely okay so i decided that this this weekend was the day that i was gonna get myself up on the fbi watch list that was like the main goal in mind i was like everything else sucks i wonder what the fbi is up to i, I bet they're bored and so i started googling shit and i was like how do you get away with the perfect murder right you gotta google more specific how to get away with murdering your fiance who is Chinese, five <laughs> foot something. Oh, excuse me. He wants me to correct that and say six foot three. He's not, but. <laughs> so I Googled it and I went on to multiple Reddit threads and I guess everyone was having the same idea as me because all of the comments on all of these different, multiple different threads of like, how would you guys get away with the perfect murder? All of the comments were like, nice try, NSA. Nice try, <laughs> FBI. Step one don't divulge on a public platform on the internet but, really um, seriously no joke yeah That's what no they say. seriously yeah and so huh. some of the people who did respond they said that you know some people believe that the perfect murder is a murder that everybody knows that you committed that murder but legally they can't do anything about it i mean there's a couple of cases like that in true crime history where everyone knows that you did it 
but legally, somehow, you've gotten away with it. Now, hmm. the other thing is, some people That's believe. Murder, yeah, think? I don't think so. I'm on the other boat where a lot of people believe that we'll never know a perfect murder. Think about it. Think about it in the shower. This is a shower thought. We will never know of the perfect murder because if it truly is perfect, no one will know about it. No one will know that it was murder. No one will know anything about it, how it was done, all of the thought, the care that went into concocting this masterful plan of murder. Mm-hmm. I sound like a serial killer <laughs> and i think this one is for me more of a perfect murder because i feel like um the other one where you just get away with it legally i mean think about all the social ramifications not being able to, being able to get a job being a community pariah because i mean you are technically the main suspect in a murder case and everyone knows it's you you get it mm-hmm. now some other people however they believe that murder requires the perfect victim so uh, from what i can see it seems like the only way to really get away with the perfect murder is to not have any idea who the victim is what do you mean like when you kill someone you just erase their identity or no like they you can't be connected to them at all you can't uh, be their brother a their stranger sister. yeah it has to be complete stranger because that's when the police really have no idea where to look and why would it be just some stranger from three towns over who has absolutely nothing to gain from your murder like serial killers yeah exactly that's why i think serial killers get away with it for so long is mm-hmm. because i think they just really kill for the kill right mm-hmm. now this one's going to be a little bit different because today's story is about a serial killer but it's not necessarily about serial killers who kill for the kill they're not killing because they want it inflict pain and they want to see that person just suffer and all of that things Mm -hmm. we're talking about serial killers who are so egotistical Mm -hmm. that they genuinely their whole reason for killing someone is to see if they can get away with it it's a couple that decided to go into this together kind of like bonnie and clyde i also do want to mention that there was this one reddit answer that i've been thinking about for quite some time now like i want to say multiple days straight so a lot of people were like oh if i'm gonna get away with murder i'm gonna rent a car under a fake identity i'm gonna do this i'm gonna wear a wig i'm gonna do this and then i'm gonna leave the country right Mm -hmm. and there was this one person where i was like oh my god i'm scared of you they were like here's the deal Mm -hmm. 16 hungry pigs Mm -hmm. if you have 16 hungry pigs it takes them collectively about eight minutes to eat through 200 pounds of raw bone and raw meat and pigs will eat whatever they want when they're hungry so you make 16 pigs very very hungry and then you throw in a 200 pound person cut up in pieces they will go through the bone like butter. Is what Seriously? They yeah. That's They're what that they strong? Apparently, yeah. They can go through the bone like butter. Like butter. Now, Ian Brady was one of these people who really just contemplated how to kill someone. And it all started. Okay, we're going to go into his childhood. But I'm going to talk about the crime that inspired Ian Brady in the first place. So Ian Brady, when he got a little bit older. So this is like a little bit of a flash forward, right? He wanted to commit the perfect murder. And that's when he started reading this book called Compulsion. And it was about two people, Artie Strauss and Jude Steiner. And Artie is this handsome, popular, sadistic dude. And Jude is this genius looking for... A companion to just idolize and they decide together that they're going to c- commit the crime of the century by murdering a 12 year old boy and getting away with it 
Now, little did you know, little did you know, this actually happened in real life. So this is what a lot of people considered the almost perfect murder. This is about Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Albert Loeb. They were both students at the University of Chicago. They were two very, very wealthy students. This was like in the 30s, by the way. Okay. now, Uh Nathan, he was considered a child protege. He had his first words at the age of four months old, which, um, I don't know anything about kids, so I was like, oh, sounds a little slow, but apparently not. That's really, really fast, apparently. And he graduated University of Chicago. He was on his way to Harvard Law School when he committed this murder. And people might think, like, why would you ever do something like that? You're about to go to Harvard Law School. Your family is loaded. What is your deal? And he studied 15 languages. He was fluent in five. Jesus. completely fluent in five he was nationally recognized um around that time as an ornithologist which means like you are the master of birds they study bird migration they know about which species does what and everything like uh, that and he watcher. had yet yeah, no but like not a, <laughs> but like he also provided some information to like the national fucking organization of bird people (laughs) okay the ministry of birds he had um (laughs) reported that there was something causing the death of a lot of the species or something i don't know he saved a bunch of birds okay Hmm. so but then he killed people yeah so he was nationally recognized in that association and then richard the other half they're just friends by the way he was intelligent but he was he preferred more to be social instead of staying at home and studying like um nathan did so richard would play tennis he would socialize he would read crime novels and detective novels and together when they became friends they decided you know what let's go commit some crimes we want to get away with some crimes so they start resorting to petty theft vandalism and then slowly they started setting houses on fire they were a part of arson groups and shit and there was no media attention on it like on any of the crimes so this really upset them because they were like how do you get away with such a big crime when nobody even knows there was a crime that was committed so they wanted to commit crime just for the reason of getting away with it so weird so weird right and so they decided for months they spent seven months planning the method of abduction the disposal of the body and they confirmed that their perfect crime was going to be to pick up someone it was Mm going to be this um okay so also the reason that they wanted to commit a crime and get away with it is that when you murder someone and you don't get caught it's something called they called it superhuman status that means you could take another life and not have any repercussions. So that mm. means you're above the law. You're above everyone else. So they came up with that idea themselves. Yeah, it came from like them reading about something. And then, then they just got obsessive so with this idea. Super egotistical. Yeah. They just want to fucking feel like they're the shit. Yeah, and they were really smart. And okay. they said the only way huh. to confirm that they are part of these like intellectual elite people, these superhuman status people, is to kill someone. Hmm. So that's when they get Bobby Franks. At the time, Nathan and Richard were both 19 and 18 years old, and Bobby was 14. He was the son of a wealthy Chicago watch manufacturer. And the reason that they chose him was because, well, I mean, they live in the same neighborhood as him. Actually, Richard was his second cousin, and they played tennis together, and he literally, deadass, like, lived across the street. And they just didn't like his personality. First of all, they thought Bobby was a little little spoiled kid, right? And second of all, they thought that if they went after a son of a wealthy family, it would be a lot bigger of a crime. Like, it's not 
not like you're stealing just a nobody off the streets. You're stealing, you know, a very, very prominent family's kid. So they were like, this is going to be all over the news. He's underage. He belongs to a rich family. This is going to be amazing. So May 21st of 1924, they rented a car under a fake name by the name of Morton D. Ballard. And they offered Frank a ride home from school. And he was like, no, thanks. I'm good. Like, I'm literally like right there. Right. And they were like, no, no, no. Get in the car. And Richard, being his second cousin who plays tennis with him, was like, hey, by the way, I've been thinking about, you know, getting rid rid of some of my tennis rackets. Do you want some of my tennis rackets? Mm -hmm. And so Frank was like, oh, why are you getting rid of those? And he gets into the car. And that's when one of them was driving and the other one grabbed a chisel that they had bought recently and they just started stabbing Bobby with it. They pulled him into the back seat. They gagged him and he soon bled to death in the car. Now they drive to Wolf Lake, which is about 25 miles away. And mm-hmm. around sunset time, they removed and discarded Bobby's clothes. They concealed his body in the river. They sunk his body in the river. They also, before they did that, put hydrochloric acid on Bobby's face and his genitals to conceal the fact that he had circumcision done. So like, I guess that was like an identity identifying factor in the 20s is mm. that it was a little bit maybe more rare to have been circumcised. Mm. So they poured acid all over his genitals. Thankfully, he wasn't alive during all of this because that would have wow. been incredibly painful. And then afterwards, when they got home, they burned Bobby's clothes. They cleaned the rental car, returned it, and they started playing cards with each other. Like nothing happened. It's crazy how evil yeah young kids can get and then the next day they called bobby's mom and said hey wait for a ransom letter okay they stole a typewriter months ago because like i said they've been planning this for seven months and with that stolen typewriter they typed up a ransom note and it was kind of like hey just wait your next call right so they drop off that mail and the next time that they call they say the next step to the ransom is going to be found at this location the (laughs) bobby frank's family member who had picked up the call where they called again to because they wanted a really intricate ransom plan i don't know why it was like a call then a letter and then another call to tell them where the next letter would be Uh and this was the call where they would tell them where the next letter would be and it was placed in like this public area Uh and the person who had picked up the phone on bobby's side of the family forgot the address because they were so nervous yeah so that's crazy so then that whole thing just kind of hit a dead point and they were like okay well we're not gonna risk calling it back the only reason that they were doing this ransom thing was to make it seem like that was the motive of the crime Mm. So this was like part of their brilliant cover up plan. Right. But Mm -hmm. um, bodies, Bobby's body became found. So they just kind of stopped everything. Now, Richard, he went about his regular routine and was just trying to lay it low. This is his second cousin, lives across the street, plays tennis with him. I mean, he's just going to act like he's grieving. Right Mm -hmm. now, Nathan, on the other hand, he would literally talk to anybody offering theories like he's like, listen, I'm so smart. Let me give you all the theories about what I think happened. Like, listen, I'm about to go to Harvard Law School. So let me give you the theories of what I think is about to happen. Right. And he even said, and I quote to a reporter, if I were to murder anybody, it would be just it would be just such a cocky son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. What the fuck? Like, I don't know why he would say that. And then it ended up biting him in the butt because near the crime scene, they found a pair of eyeglasses. Now, these are generic eyeglasses that thousands of people in Chicago have prescription eyeglasses, right? Uh But there was an unusual screw that only three people in Chicago had recently purchased to be fitted with those specific eyeglasses. And Nathan was one of them. (laughs) 
genius Nathan left his eye glasses at the crime scene. Yeah. And so he claimed that they fell off while they were bird watching a couple weeks back before the murder ever happened. But, you know, the police were very suspicious. So they questioned both of them. The police were suspicious because, I mean, all of it was just weird. The fact that he was so involved with the reporters about the murder investigation to begin with. All of these things. They were just like, we don't believe you. And Mm -hmm. so they questioned him and he said, well, you know, my alibi is Richard. I was with Richard that night and we went golfing. And that all came to like a weird stop because they actually questioned Nathan's chauffeur. Imagine that. Imagine that you get caught for murder because your chauffeur gives you up. And so Nathan is like, listen, so me and Richard, we took my car and we went golfing. And so Nathan's chauffeur was like questioned and they said, did you take them golfing? And he said, no, I didn't take them golfing. And they said, "Okay, well, maybe they drove themselves. And the chauffeur goes, well, that's impossible because the car was broken. And so I was fixing that car that day. And so they're like, okay, great. So the both of them, they confess to murder and they immediately start blaming each other. And when the police asked, you know, why did you do it? Like, what was the reason? Mm -hmm. They just said they wanted to get away with murder. They were disappointed because they thought maybe after they killed someone, they would feel a little bit different. Uh But they felt exactly the same. What, What do you mean? Like during the killing, they thought they would get some crazy rush. Mm -hmm. Something cool happens to them, but no. But they don't also, they don't feel sad or remorse or... they just felt exactly the same. Apparently, they're not that smart. Yeah, how do you leave your eyeglasses behind, dude? That's just really bad. No, I mean, what are you talking about? Now, Ian Brady, let's talk about his childhood. Wait, so that was a book. Yeah. It's a real crime. The book Uh is based off of the real crime. I see. And so this is a crime that Ian Brady was obsessed with. And the minute that I said his name, if you guys live in the UK, then you already know who I'm talking about. This is one of the most prolific serial killers of UK history, right? So Ian Brady is just part of the duo. So it's Ian Brady and Myra Henley. They're a couple and they will go on to kill five children together. And the whole purpose is to get away with murder. They also become obsessed with books. There was this one other book that I'm going to go into great detail about. So it's just going to get really dark. Like you got to hold on to your pants because it's going to get real sinister. So Ian Brady's childhood was that that was not... I mean, it was not particularly astonishing. It was not particularly shocking or sad or anything like that. He was born in Scotland to a Margaret Peggy Stewart, and she was an unmarried tea room waitress. So around that time when he was born, like it just was not normal to have um, just a single mom. Like usually they're married to even be born when you're in a relationship and they're not married was just like this big shock of the town. Right. And so he would always ask, like, who is my dad? Who is my dad? And people would always say that his dad was a reporter for the Glasgow glow paper and he died three months before he was born so he never really knew who his dad was there's rumors that ian brady is actually the result of a one night stand Mm -hmm. so we don't really know now around the time that he was like four months old his mom realized that she just can't get a job because she can't afford childcare. so because she can't afford a babysitter she can't have time to go to work and because she can't go to work she can't afford a babysitter and Mm -hmm. so that's when she decided to put up an ad like literally at a coffee shop she put up a piece of paper that that said, I will give you one pound a week if you take my kid. 
And so Mary and John Sloan, they were not a well-off family. They already had four kids of their own, but they were like, listen, we've already got a lot of supplies that take care of kids. And we, we feel for this person because when we were having kids, it was just as difficult. So let's do it. They call out to her and they said, OK, like we're going to take your kid. Now, the way that they had arranged it was really good because actually Margaret would be able to visit Ian Brady almost on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. So he didn't know until a while later that Margaret was his mom. He just thought it was like this really friendly woman who would bring gifts every week. <laughs> so they okay. just thought it was like a mom's friend. And Mary became known as his mom to him. And they adopted him and he had taken on the name Sloan. So he was Ian Sloan for a long time of his life. And there's rumors that he would do creepy things like torture animals and throw cats off the roof. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know if these are true. There's no confirmation that this is true. And on top of that, Ian Brady is actually one of the few serial killers that is obsessed with pets they love pets he loves animals so i can't imagine when he was young he killed them and then later on he grew to love them mm-hmm. how, how do we know that he loves animals he had a he had a dog with myra that he loved and he said that people who hurt animals are scum what yeah so it's really weird how right? does that work yeah so some people say that neighbors you know they talked to the press later and they were like yeah he used to throw cats off the roof but you, it gets a little weird when a serial killer is exposed because all of the neighbors come out of the woodworks and like i fucking knew it you know they're like oh, i knew that was weird i knew that bitch is weird like they say stuff like that so i i'm not sure if this is true mm-hmm. especially because his pattern later on just kind of doesn't really prove it so it's a little strange and he really loved the outdoors so i know that this is not my halloween episode and i'm actually doing an episode maybe a baking a mystery that's going up on halloween day but i think it's really important that you guys hear this out before halloween is quickly approaching us before the holidays thanksgiving christmas honestly just any day is a reason to drink these days (laughs) i have been obsessed with butterbeer recently and it's just something what is butterbeer listen if you don't know butterbeer we can't be friends it's literally the beer from harry potter and you make it with like rum and stuff and it's actually very very good okay and i love butterbeer but i don't love just anticipating the next day of having like those sunday scaries feeling like garbage i don't like that so i take my dhm detox and it's pretty much the vitamin for people who like to enjoy their drinks tens of thousands of people are using dhm detox right now as their drinking buddy listen it's time to start taking care of yourself and thinking about the next day. Like, don't throw away the next day just because you want to have fun today. You don't have to do that anymore. Their company is built on the words, no days wasted, which I firmly stand by. And they use science to help boost your body's natural response to alcohol and break down those toxins. And I know what you're thinking. No, it's not magic, okay? It's not no Harry Potter science. It's actually made up of natural ingredients, antioxidants, and vitamins. You just take two capsules after your first couple of drinks and it goes to work. They also come in these really convenient packets that are easy to share with friends and family while you're celebrating. DHM Detox is a risk-free purchase so that if you guys aren't satisfied after taking the product, they'll give you your money back. It's a no-brainer. So at the very least, give it a shot. (laughs) and get a refund if you don't love it we've got you covered with 20% off of your order so just head over to nodayswasted.co slash rotten and use promo code rotten at checkout that's nodayswasted.co 
Co. I mean, that's kind of how he grew up. It seems like there's really nothing troubling in his past. It seems like the Sloans were really, really good to him. And the reason that everything kind of started falling apart was when he was young, his mom decided to move away to England because he had married. She had married someone. And so she was like, I can't be in Scotland anymore. Like, I got to go be with my new husband. And he just was not able to see his mom anymore. And by that point, he had found out that this was his mom. So he was just a little bit confused. And he was uh-huh. accepted into something called Shaw. Academy, which was a school for above average kids. So he was kind of doing well up until up until his mom moved away and his bad behavior was just going berserk. He had like this group of school friends. And what he would do is that he would say, "Okay, every day that we come to school, we're going to pick a little victim for the day. And the rest of us, we're going to bully that victim. And of course, Ian Brady was never the picked victim. He was kind of like the ringleader of them all. So they'd be like, hey, Kevin, you're the victim today. And today we're going to tie you up to a tree and like tickle you and beat you. And so they'd be like, "Okay," And everyone would go along with it because the victim would change every single day. It wasn't like it was always the same person. So then they'd be like, oh, I'm not hanging out with you guys anymore. So that was just like this weird like they they pick on anyone just even someone from their own group it was always someone from their own group and it was just a victim of the day that's so weird isn't it weird that's fucking weird it's weird why they do that exactly and i think maybe they felt like some sort of camaraderie from all of this people Mm. think that this happened because ian brady was obsessed with nazis like he loved the nazis now the war around this time world war ii had ended about five years ago and so there was just I mean, there was a lot going on and he was just obsessed with it. He would want to recreate infamous scenes that he had heard about that the Nazis had done and he would just recreate them with his friends. Like, oh my God, you're going to pretend to be like in a gas chamber. Oh, I'm going to shoot you. And they'd pretend to just be shot dead. It was horrendous. I mean, I don't I don't even know how that would work. Wait, how old were they? He was like 11. Oh. He was so young. Yeah, kids are weird. Yeah, kids yeah. are so weird. I mean, I remember when I was 11, I played house. Yeah, exactly. But they're ta- playing yeah. different type of house. Yeah, not a house. Yeah. A war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just so dark. And so this is just exactly the kind of like atmosphere that he would um, create around all of his friends. Now, there was this one situation that he claims is not true. Ian Brady said that this never happened, mm-hmm. but the victim came forward and talked about it. And he said that he was actually one of Ian Brady's friends back in the day, and he was the chosen victim of the day that day. Mm-hmm. And so Ian had instructed all of the friends, tie him to a tree and to cover the boy, the victim, in newspaper and put newspaper all of the ground and then he would go around threatening to light it with a little box of matches in his hand mm-hmm. and everyone was pretending to be like oh my god like we're just nazis right like <sighs> literally i'm not saying that to be funny like that's literally how they did it and he's laughing out of shock yeah they weren't even doing it like oh i'm just a nazi and like trying to make that term something else uh-huh. they genuinely were pretending to be nazis right and so he was like yeah 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 i'm gonna light him on fire what do you guys say my fellow nazis and they'd be like yeah do it woo right And then did they do it? And that's where it gets a little bit murky. The victim came forward and said that it happened, that he lit the newspapers on fire and he suffered very small burns. But the rest of the boys kind of snapped out of it the minute that he actually did it. They thought this was some like role playing like they did with like the pretending to shoot each other. Mm. 
when they were pretending to be Nazis. So they were kind of shook. The minute that he sent him on fire, all of them stamped out the fire. But it just was a lot. He kind of had a bit of like a falling out after that with his friends. And he started getting into girlfriends. And this, he's very interesting. So his first girlfriend was when he really discovered that he liked sex. So he would kiss her so hard that her mouth would bleed, that his mouth would bleed. And it was just like this thing that he would do with her all the time. Now, he really wanted to graduate. Yeah. (laughs) Now, he really wanted to graduate into having sex. And so he gets a new girlfriend. But this new girlfriend, he was like, I can't have sex with her because she is so pure. And I love her innocence. And if I have sex with her, I will ruin her. And I won't like her anymore if I have sex with her because she's no longer pure. Hmm. Which is just such an odd thing to think when you're at that age, right? And so then his third girlfriend, he decided to go the complete opposite way. And apparently he had lost his virginity to her. They had crazy sex. They had threesomes. I mean, he was very, very young. And he was just doing all of this nonsense. And so at 15 years old, he leaves the academy and he became a worker at a shipyard. So there was this one issue, though, that he had suffered, which was the fact that he had a family pet by the name of Sheila. So he's still living with the Sloans, right? And they had this dog ever since he was young and her name was Sheila. Now, they all kind of knew that Sheila was getting old. So even the Sloans, they were all just like, we're going to get ready. Like, we know that dogs don't live forever, right? Mm -hmm. And one day, Ian came home from school and his mom was just crying in the corner mm-hmm. mrs sloan mm-hmm. and he knew exactly what had happened and the dog was gone and so he ran out of the house and he started wandering around just crying and he started kind of realizing this one fact the fact that death is inevitable and he said it was a really emotional experience for him Interesting. very strange so right the death of the dog did a number on him did a big number on him and then he also had issues after this where he would start stealing things um the sloans yeah they weren't well off but they were really trying to make a good living for their kids right so they already have like four biological kids and then they have ian which by the way the sloans never ever made it seem like ian was not their kid even when he was committing crimes they never threatened to kick him out they never threatened to send him to his mom they were just like hey why are you doing this what's going on right and there was this one time where he had stolen something and another dude had ratted him out and he decided to go confront that dude and he started running towards that dude and he said that the fear in this guy's eyes when he was running towards him it was so good it was almost delicious he loved the power and the ability to put that fear into someone's face and he just became a little bit obsessed and that's when he decided to do something else so he had multiple more arrests he had new jobs after new jobs he went to jail multiple times to the point where literally the police were like do you want to go to jail again or do you want to go live with your biological mom because you have these two choices and so he went to move back in with his biological mom in england and now she was living with her new husband whose last name was brady and he got along with them so he even changed his name to ian brady from ian sloan and that's when he decided to do something completely shocking everybody was shook by this he decided to better himself he was like i'm gonna get i need to help myself okay so he decided to go to the library he Mm -hmm. would rent these books out and he would just study all night long he wouldn't go out he wouldn't go steal anymore he would just study what does he study we'll get into that but he had a very interesting love for 
philosophers who had weird philosophies. And now let's meet the other half, Myra Henley. I'm going to start with their childhood because the minute that they meet each other, it's just like this bang happens and just so much chaos occurs, right? So Myra Henley's childhood, she's dubbed the most evil woman in Britain, which is kind of crazy because a couple weeks ago we talked about Rose West, Rode, Rosemary and Fred West and their house of horrors. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot, right? But she is considered the most evil, Damn. which by the way, this is the one I'm talking about that Rose West had an affair in prison with is Myra Henley. Two female serial killers that kill children had an affair in prison. Are you serious? Yeah, Rosemary West. Remember her? Yeah. The one with the peepholes in the room. What? Yeah. So allegedly they had an affair in prison. So they're from the same age, same time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is weird. It's so weird. The yeah. collab nobody asked for. <laughs> Can I say that? That was a really dark so. joke. Yeah, that was, a, yeah. that was a really dark joke. Sorry. Okay. So Myra Henley, the most evil woman in Britain, she really didn't start off that way. Like when people were asked about Myra Henley's childhood, everyone would say that she was just so, so mediocre. There's really nothing to say about her except for the fact that she was just the pure definition of mediocre was she good at something not really was she horrendous at something not really she was just she's just fucking lukewarm not know? even like nice no just like, like super average just just, average. just super mediocre like there's not one thing that they can really say like oh she was at least she was passionate about like fucking i don't know pokemon cards harry potter like they're just like yeah she just was there yeah, she existed. Now, she was born to Nellie, her mom, and Bob, her dad. And both of them would beat her regularly. And they came from a really, really impoverished family. Like, it was really bad. So when she was first born, she was forced to sleep on a single bed that was directly next to her parents' bed because they could only afford, like, just that much space for the beds, right? Yeah. And her parents decided to have a second kid. Her name was Maureen. So mm-hmm. her younger sister, she comes very pertinent to the story later. And that made them a little bit more poor, right? And the dad, he... He had served with the British Air Forces. Now, people say, people say that Bob, he was a good dude until after the Second War. Okay, why? So it's said that during the Second War, which I know lots of people are talking about the Second War right now because um, it's kind of crazy. You know, back in the day, everyone was like, I volunteer to kill myself for the country in war. And now we're all like, torn apart. <laughs> you get it. Oh, yeah. And so the second war, apparently everyone just drank alcohol the whole time because it kept them warm and it kind of cut the edge off of all the death because it wasn't like a cute little like we're just going to put on our little uniforms and march around like it was a fucking war and so many people died. And Mm. so they would just be constantly drinking. So Bob, before the British Air Force, he was known to be a very, very nice dude up until afterwards. He was just a drunk alcoholic. He had he was stationed in North Africa and then Italy later during the Second World War. And he was a veteran. So when he came back, he was a hard man. Everyone said that he expected his his daughters to be really really tough so at eight years old myra she comes home with this scratch on her cheek she's like daddy daddy i'm crying because this local boy he scratched my cheek i don't even know why i mean it was out of nowhere so rude and so she's crying to her dad and i guess what you would expect from a dad at that point is to be like you know what it's gonna be okay i'm gonna go talk to that boy's parents right yeah but as her dad looked at her and said if you don't go beat that boy up i will beat you up that's a weird way of yeah teaching he said that if you don't stand up for yourself you're gonna get beat up by me now 
So his message is you have to stand up for yourself. Yeah, with violence. And so she went back out there and she beat that boy up. And she said that this was her dad's proudest moment in her entire life. And also that this was like her first conquer. That's what she called it. Interesting. Was when she was eight years old. And then her dad would, the only times that they would get along and he wouldn't beat her is when he taught her how to like punch things. Like, he was like, I learned this in war. Punch this. Wow. Yeah, very strange. And so it was just a lot. So I guess that this would cause a lot of psychological issues in her because, I mean, she experienced violence in the home. The dad would beat her and her younger sister, but the dad would also beat his wife. And Nellie, she was kind of like, she was a little soft, but she was also very mean. So she would beat her husband back and they would just beat each other up. And so there was just lots of violence in the house. And mm-hmm. then she sees that and then she goes out. And now her dad is so proud of her for beating up a local boy. Mm-hmm. So it's like this confusing of like violence is always in the house. But I'm also rewarded for the violence that I bring outside of the house. Mm-hmm. So she was just getting confused. Now, at this time, I mean, the violence was getting so bad because, I mean, it was just a lot in the house. And yeah. the parents, it seemed like they still kind of cared about the kids. And they were like, we don't want them to grow up like this. Obviously, they're becoming miserable. And so they came up with this plan. So Nellie's mom, which is um, Myra's grandmother, she lived literally across the street. Uh-huh. So they decided that the girls were going to stay with the grandma and they would just come back every day for breakfast, lunch and dinner. So mm-hmm. it was like they would sleep with grandma. They would spend most of the nights at grandma, but they would kind of pretend to live in their parents house once in a while so that they would still have their mother and father figure around so it was kind of like this you know collaborative effort to raise the kids well so it seemed like they did put in a lot of effort right now when Myra was around 13 years old she befriended someone by the name of Michael Higgins and Michael was like her best friend the reason that they became friends was because Myra saw Michael getting bullied and she beat up his bullies multiple times and she was like, um, can you not bully this random kid? And so she would beat up the bullies. And then like a couple of weeks later, she would see Michael getting bullied again. So she'd walk over there and beat up the bullies again. And so Michael was like, I kind of really like you, right? Like you want to be friends. And so they became really, really, really good friends. And it seemed like it was a genuine relationship. It wasn't like a weird, violent, you know, she was just trying to like beat him up, you know, instead <laughs> type of situation. Like it was just truly a good friendship uh-huh. now michael one day he was like listen myra why don't we go to the swimming like swimming in a reservoir that was like his favorite thing to do there was like this little reservoir and he was like let's go swimming let's go swimming and she was uh-huh. like oh i can't like i already made friends to go i already made plans to go with another friend somewhere else uh-huh. so he was like oh well i guess i'll just go alone so he goes to the reservoir alone and uh-huh. she goes with her friend and does her thing and as she's walking home from hanging out with her friend she uh-huh. hears someone say did you hear about the accident at the reservoir and everyone's talking about the reservoir in the reservoir and she's like oh no like that's where michael was right and so she immediately runs over to the reservoir and she saw the police pulling his drowned body out of the reservoir he had drowned What are the odds of that? Yeah, and Myra, she blamed herself a lot for his death because she was also a very, very good swimmer. So she felt like if she had gone to the reservoir, it wouldn't have been like a double accident. Like it wouldn't have been both of them dying. Like she could have saved him because she was that good at swimming. So right now it sounds like she's a really good person. I I mean, not really good. (laughs) But like averagely good. Yeah. Like has a heart. Yeah, like like a violent kind person. Like a like a vigilante justice beats up the bully type of person, right? Yeah. But I don't know, right? And she was also really good with kids. <laughs> Am I just praising a serial killer right now? I'm not. But also, you have to remember, this is before her crimes, right? Yeah. 
So she was a she was a babysitter, but she never really wanted kids of her own. She didn't even really like like her sister's kids. Like she didn't really care for her like nieces and nephews. She uh-huh. just she was good with them. The kids loved her, but she just didn't really particularly like kids. And then she had lots of different jobs. I mean, so back in the day, right, the whole thing was that when you were a girl living in a village like this or like a not so great area from a not so great family is that you would just turn 19. You would probably get a factory job. You would meet a husband, get married and then stay at home while you raise the kids in a very average home. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of like her path. So she got a job at a mechanic shop and all of her colleagues at first they were like oh my god we love our new employee we love Myra we love Myra right Mm -hmm. and the way that they would get paid every week is that they would just get this random envelope of cash in it and their name on it and that's how they take it home it's just this white envelope with their name on it and they go home and that's their weekly paycheck now one day they're walking home everyone's in a good mood because of course it's payday right Mm -hmm. so they're walking home with their little envelopes and she comes back to work that day just crying crying her eyes out uh-huh. and she said she had dropped her paycheck and then the wind had blown it into the river or something uh-huh. and like her money is gone she doesn't know what to do now of course because this is like a mechanic shop most of the people who were working there they were paycheck to paycheck like they depended on that yeah. that wasn't just like oh i'm gonna go buy a shirt with this money like that was rent that was food yeah. and so all of our colleagues felt so bad mm-hmm. that they rallied together and they all pitched in a little bit to make up her full paycheck again Wow. And she was so grateful and she cried and cried and then she went home with that paycheck. And then the next week she came in crying and she said, my paycheck, my paycheck. I dropped it and the wind pulled it into the river. Now, this time nobody gave her money and it just left like a really nasty taste in people's mouth. People were like, really, dude, is this the game that you're going to try doing? Like they were even questioning the first time now. Yeah. What is she dumb? So it seems like we don't even know if the first time was real or not. So we don't know if it was like this plan or if it just happened and she saw that it worked and she was so dumb that she was like, I'm going to do it again. Right, right, right. So I'm not sure. So that was like her little undoing at this work. And so when everyone started hating her, she was like, fine, I'm going to get a different job now. Right. And Uh so she started working somewhere else and she was actually engaged at this point. (laughs) With who? a guy by the name of Ronnie. Okay, so it's not the other serial killer. Yeah, she didn't really like Ronnie. But she was just like, this is how it's supposed to be. Like, I'm already 17. I've missed my prime. You know, there's no way I can find someone else before I turn 19. Like, usually people were getting married at like 18 around that age. So she was like, I gotta gotta find my boo thing. Yeah, when I was 18, I was like, I gotta find a bra that doesn't give me indigestion. But she was like, I gotta find the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. tough times yeah so she starts dating ronnie and it just was a very lackluster relationship she decides to do other things to occupy her time like take judo lessons yeah she used to take judo lessons and everyone hated being her judo partner because they said that she would never release them like she would (laughs) she'd be like let me just practice with you and then she would hold them in a like a death grip and then like usually when you tap out in these little practice things they let go right uh-huh. but she would just kind of hold on for a little bit longer <laughs> and be like what are you doing and she would just be like just a minute more and so nobody was really her partner so her judo lessons kind of went moot because nobody wanted to actually practice with her and how do you practice judo by yourself you can't really 
So uh-huh. she became bored of that. And that's when she got a new job at Millward's Wholesale Chemical Distribution. And she was a typist. And that's where Ian Brady was working as a clerical position. Uh-oh. We're about to get into their dating life. And their dating life is really intense. Not in the ways that I would want it to be. Let me tell you in the ways that I like my intense relationship. I'm like getting a little bit shy. I feel weird talking about it, but I feel like I'm doing a service to all of the women out there. Listen, before I started using O-Shot, <laughs> I had a good sex life. But now, I mean, it's astronomical, would you say? <laughs> Here's the point. Every woman deserves to experience stronger, more frequent orgasms, okay? But sometimes we just need a little boost in the bedroom. I don't care how much love is in your relationship. And O-Shot Woman is here to help you take charge of your sex life and give you the pleasure that you deserve. <laughs> they have this CBD-infused arousal oil, and it's developed by women for women. And it's like this luxurious arousal oil that just, like, heightens your sensations. They have a broad-spectrum hemp cbd inside of it so you apply it to your intimate areas and it smells so delicious and you instantly start experiencing this like tingling this warming sensation and it enhances your lubrication oh my god the sensitivity in that area becomes just the ultimate way to climax the best part is is that it's 100 percent edible and it honestly tastes delicious you can take my word most arousal lubricants that we've used before they typically have just like one ingredient that provides like a sensory feeling so it's like oh here's hot or cold right or it's just gonna stimulate your arousal right most of them are synthetic which i don't like and they have this unpleasant taste or smell or they contain chemicals which like why would you want to do that to yourself but oshot cbd arousal oil contains eight natural and organic botanicals that provide a sensory tingling and promote multiple physiological effects to increase stimulation circulation arousal lubrication desire and just overall satisfaction <laughs> oshot cbd is offering you guys a 20 off of oshot this discount also applies towards anything on their product i'm talking site wide so go to oshotcbd.com today and enter code rotten that is o s h o t cbd.com and enter code rotten to get 20 off site wide now let's talk about something that's not going to give you the tingles which is this weird relationship that we're about to dive deep into now myra immediately when she laid her little eyes on ian she was like that's my man she was like i love this guy he is so handsome what is it about him he doesn't look he's not like other boys right so she immediately was like i want to make him my boyfriend even though i'm engaged right now right she was like i'm gonna date this guy and it just wasn't working because ian had absolutely no interest in her he was just reading his book during break all the time he just was not trying to be in a relationship it was just weird the way that myra describes her first in like impression of him mm-hmm. is fatal attraction those are her words fatal fatal attraction huh. yeah and so she tries for months for months to get him to notice her to like her anything she even started a diary where she would just write about ian and like to tell you how obsessive she was over him was the fact that she would just detail in her diary oh today ian smiled at me dear diary (laughs) ian brady smiled at me twice today dear diary ian brady ate my lunch today what 
I don't know. I'm just saying like that's usually the problems I have with coworkers. But she would just oh. keep a diary of everything that she would write about her little experiences with Ian. And it just uh-huh. was really, really, really intense. She said that he could just smile at you and everything would just be amazing. And everything she did just wasn't working. So one day she notices that he's reading a book about Nazis by a certain author. So she goes to the library, checks out a book, the exact same book, and just like casually starts reading it during lunch which is weird because the whole time that she had been trying to hit on ian i mean she's a social person so she was constantly talking to people during the break lunch right Uh and then suddenly she's like oh guys can you keep it quiet i'm reading this book and Uh so he noticed and he was like oh you like that book and Uh she's like i like that book and they start talking about the book she has no idea what he's talking about because she hasn't read the book and Uh so she's just like oh my god this is working so the next day she went to the library brought another book from that author and she was pretending to read it and he was like you know what why don't we go out? And she was like, really? And so they started dating. So they went out for a couple drinks. And usually their date routine would be to go to the cinema and they would watch this X-rated movie. And then they would go back to Myra's place where she lives with her grandma. And they would just drink German wine while reading about Nazi atrocities. Like they would literally sit there and read about the darkest shit that the Nazis did. And they would like read it together. Like, you know how we recently reread Harry Potter together? Mm -hmm. They would do it, but like about Nazis. And they like it. Yeah, but it wasn't even like in, in a historical way. Yeah. You know, it was just kind of like a leisurely thing. It wasn't like, like they were trying to. Yeah, like they weren't trying to gain information from it. They weren't trying to like it genuinely like this was their hobby. This was their free time. Mm. And that was around the time that Myra started debuting her new look, which was she bleached her black brown hair which I'm sure you guys can kind of maybe draw a connection there. And she wore crimson red lipstick and dark eyeliner. And she was receiving lots of male attraction because everyone was like, you look so different. You look so cool. And she really liked it. I mean, she didn't really care for any other guy, but she really liked that people were looking out for her. So they would just spend their time doing this. They would watch movies. And now Ian Brady was an atheist. And Myra was pretty much a Christian for her entire life. I mean, she was so big of a Christian that up until she met Ian Brady, Mm -hmm. she was saving it towards marriage she was like i'm not gonna have sex with anyone i mean she did lose her virginity to ian brady Mm -hmm. and she said it was weird because she it was really violent i mean he would choke her he would do all these like crazy things with her and she just didn't know that that's not what sex is because i mean this was her first time so she was like i guess that's just sex is a violent thing Mm. and she said she didn't particularly enjoy it i thought she started like what is it what was this sport that she was playing and nobody wants to play with her anymore oh judo (laughs) (laughs) she starts playing judo with ian (laughs) why do i think that's funny that's not funny (laughs) oh my god and he would always just shit on her beliefs he would try to come up with these arguments why christianity is not real and she was really kind of falling prey to it you can definitely see that there was a power dynamic she would even tell her friends and family like anytime he would she would be like oh i'm going to church today in front of all of her friends he'd be like that's stupid you know that's you know god's not real Hmm. and she they would look at her like what the fork like that's so disrespectful what's wrong with him and she would Mm -hmm. say well he is smarter than me so Interesting. So she just kind of, I guess, went along with it. One time she even wrote a letter to her friend saying that Ian has like this really lengthy criminal record and he's drugged her before to assault her. And she can't help it, though. She's just obsessed with him. 
And then a few months later, her friend was writing back like, you need to get out of this relationship. This sounds really toxic. Like he sounds like not a good person. And Myra wrote back to her friend saying, can you destroy that letter? I don't know what I was thinking sending it. Okay. And then she had another change of appearance where she started just wearing risky clothes, just like high boots, short skirts, leather jackets, which back in the day was like risque. Now, they started going on new dates. These times, they would start going to the library and they would just read up on philosophy, crime, torture, Nazi stuff. That was like their favorite thing. And people, other people like documentaries, other like crime videos I've seen, they all kind of like breeze through this part, which I get it, but I find it so fascinating, right? And I kind of want to get into it. So this part is going to be about a specific philosopher, a French nobleman and philosopher and writer. And he was one of their favorites. They loved anything written by Marquis de Sade or Sade. I'm not sure. I'm not French and I'm also not cultured. I'm an idiota. And so he was um, back in the day. The word sadism and sadist is actually derived from his name. Which if you guys don't know, sadism is when you get pleasure from inflicting pain on other people. So most serial killers are sadists. They like seeing people in pain. Mm. And he wrote a lot of erotic work. It was considered pornography. He would depict sexual fantasies with an emphasis on violence against women and children. He loved suffering. He loved anal sex. He loved crime that was mixed in with sexual fantasies. And people called him a blasphemy against Christianity because this was way back in the day right and one of their favorite works to read together and one of his most infamous works is a book called 121 days of sodom and i'm gonna read you about it okay so the medieval it's a medieval castle setting and it's high in the mountains so think about that right you've got this giant beautiful castle think hogwarts in the mountains surrounded by forest and these four wealthy noblemen they're sitting around and they're thinking to themselves our life is so boring you know what can we do that will spice bring some spice into our lives four right? men in the castle yeah just the four of them. And so they're like, what Slytherin? <laughs> Gryffindor. Gryffindor. But, you know, Helga and Ravina. Was that her name? Ravenclaw? It was two two girls. and two, you, Okay, sorry. I'll All shut right, up. Anyways. anyways, so they're like, we need to do something more fun. We need to spend the next four months of our life really living our lives to the fullest. What's the point of being so rich if we can't have fun? That's how they were thinking to themselves. And so they decided to lock themselves into the castle for four months with four female brothel keepers. So they're like madams who just, you know, they have brothels and 36 teenagers, including their own daughters, including ma- male teens and female teens and their own daughters. And so the way that the story is set up is that the brothel keepers, they would read these erotic novels to the foreign noblemen. And then after they are read these novels in like a seductive voice, they would go recreate the scenes from the erotic novels. And a lot of it, in, you know, involved orgies with underage people, including their own kids. And they had lots of poop eating involved, oh, which they man. considered a delicacy. So they would eat it like... Yeah, literally like a delicacy. And the problem that people had with it was not only is this probably the nastiest books ever written in history to the point where it is banned in so many countries and it still is banned in so many countries. Like imagine paper is banned. Like you're like, you can't read what's on this paper because you you just can't. Right. It was banned and it's written as if these four wealthy males are just like the heroes of the book. 
they're not written to be like nasty, disgusting vultures. Like they need to be in prison. Like they're written as if, wow, imagine what a heroic tale that they have now created. It was just written so nastily, right? And they would even like have this little goblet like the goblet of fire but instead of like winning a triwizard tournament it was pee so they would have these teenagers like pee in there and like the four men would like take turns drinking it oh my god! yeah it was just weird so the chapters each chapter was broken down into the four months like i said they locked themselves up there for four months right and the first month was november coming up in a couple of days and the title of that chapter was simple passions so it just dealt with sex orgies um drinking pee eating poop that was called simple passions then december they really amped it up and now all of this i'm simplifying it because in the book itself they go really in depth onto all of these i think the book itself has 150 plus antidotes of rape which means just little short stories of rape yeah so it was banned (laughs) From a lot of places. Anyways, so that's the simple pleasures. Now, December is, you know, chapter number two, and they called it complex passions. And that included the complex passions included rape, incest, and something called sacrilegious activity, where these males would like to rape nuns while mass was being performed. I mean, you're talking about some real sick, nasty stuff, like so disrespectful to literally every human out there there is not one human that they have not disrespected in this book so that was chapter number two i mean it amps up every chapter so chapter number three january was called criminal passions that's when they started doing things that they believed to be illegal so i guess maybe they didn't think rape or incest or sacrilegious activity was illegal so this included extreme pedophilia like three years old and then mutilation. So they would assault the teenagers while cutting off their fingers and, you know, like pouring wax on them and stuff. And they would even prostitute their own daughters to the nastiest people that they could find nearby the castle. And they would watch the proceedings happen. And then chapter number four was February. So February was called murderous passion. And that one was just real nasty. There was over 150 tales of murder. They would disembowel pregnant women. They would skin children alive. They would impregnate women. And the minute that they like, well, they wouldn't impregnate them. I guess they were already pregnant. It's weird, right? So they would be pregnant. They would give birth. And then they would kill the babies in front of the mom right after they gave birth for them to feel the trauma of that. There was even this one story, the short story in there about a guy who was obsessed with, you know, putting nails into um, boobs. Like he really loved sticking nails into boobs. And so his final deed that he wanted to do in February, because, you know, it was getting amped up every single time, he decided to create a bed of nails and he assaulted women on there while they lay bleeding to death oh my god and then chapter number five was march but march is just a cleanup it's the shortest chapter and it just tells you who dies it's just like so these people are dead now because of you know all the torture and stuff yeah so he released that from prison the author is a 
is in prison? Yeah, so you're probably wondering. That's that doesn't make sense. There's no way someone I mean, I am full I am a full believer that books and these like works of literature, you can be as sick nasty as you want. It's up to the reader to not read your book, right? That's why I don't get like that offended by like songs like WAP coming out. Like just don't listen to it if you don't like it, right? I'm kind of like the, on the same page with books, right? Yeah. Sometimes you do explore very sick, sick ideas when you're writing a book. However, this one I find to be a little too much, right? Yeah. And it was because a lot of things were happening in his life at the same time. So in his real life, the real author's real life, not the book, right? His uh-huh. first scandal was that he lived in this giant castle because he's a nobleman. I mean, he was filthy rich. So he started having an affair with his wife wife's sister that he also then moved into the castle with them and so neighbors were talking about it that was his first scandal then the second scandal was that he saw this woman begging on the side of the road and she's like please i need a job i need to feed my family and so he hired her and he was like you're gonna be a housekeeper at my castle so she said okay amazing i can send money back to my family so she joins him in the castle where he strips her naked ties her up whips her and then pours candle wax into the lacerations that the whips had caused so it was just a lot of torture. So she came, she ran away from the castle because she was held there for like quite some time. She ran away, told the police and everything. And it was just this ginormous scandal. He went on the run because the police were looking for him. And that's when he decided to drug four prostitutes to assault them. And it was just like this whole thing. And then he went on the run again. And then finally he was caught. So during his short lifetime, he spent 32 years in an insane asylum. And he had numerous sexual crimes against young men, women, and children. So he's not just like a psycho writer. Yeah. He He actually is experimenting with these crimes. And then... Yeah. But he had this like such a privileged... what do you call it pretentious way because his claim his claim for assaulting all of these people and torturing people and writing books like this is that he was a proponent of absolute freedom unrestrained by morality religion and law so it sounds fancy when you say like that but you're just a freaking criminal and you deserve to die in hell right 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 yeah so then they said that he would read this book to her so ian brady would read that book 120 days of sodom and he would how does he even find a book like that yeah and he would then beat her and assault her myra hmm. but i guess maybe in her head at the time because you know the claim is that she was so brainwashed by ian at the time that mm-hmm. she didn't realize maybe that's what was going on maybe she felt like this was like a sick fantasy that they were playing out and then the other two of their favorite authors was a frederick Nietzsche, I think he's a German philosopher, and I mean he is. They're overall, called philosophers, huh? Yeah, I mean this one. This one seems like a philosopher. He, uh, the only thing I could really find on him without getting bored was that he was a profound influence on modern intellectual history. And then I checked out after that. I was like, that was a lot. So he seems to be a genuine philosopher. And then there was um, Theodore Dostoevsky. I can never say his name, but you guys will probably remember his name from um, Crime and Punishment, the author. He's a Russian novelist and a philosopher. So those were their favorite authors. And he particularly liked the first one I talked about. The nasty one. And so that's when they decide, you know what? We're going to live a life of crime. Like these books are really motivating them to become just crazy criminals. They're like, what's the point? What's the point of living in this little rat race society? We deserve better. You and I, you and I deserve to take things from people. You and I are not like other people. So they decided to go rob banks. Now, in order to do that, they needed to get a van because you can't just run out of a bank with all that money. Like you need a getaway car. 
mm-hmm. neither of them had a license mm-hmm. so myra had to get a license because of ian's criminal record he literally was not allowed to get a license mm-hmm. so he was like okay myra you need to learn how to drive now during this time she would fail her license test three times before she finally got her driver's license it was known to be a very um costly affair she spent a lot of money trying to get this car and it Mm. seemed like she was all hands down for it she was like yeah sounds good so finally they get a van and it was just um they just needed guns next and mm-hmm. so she was like, okay, I need to go get some guns. So he was like, you need to go to a rifle club and learn how to shoot. And then they can sell you a gun. Mm-hmm. So she went to the rifle club and she's learning how to shoot. Mm-hmm. But all of the people that work at the rifle club are like, you really suck at shooting. Like you're a really bad shot and you seem to have a temper when you miss. And that doesn't seem like something we want in a gun owner. <laughs> a really bad shot and a really temperamental shot is not exactly what we like in a gun owner. So she was denied to buy guns, but somehow she was able to talk some of the fellow members, like not the people who run the club, uh-huh. but like fellow members. And they were like, yeah, I guess I'll just sell you my gun. Because they just had, I guess, extra guns that they weren't using. So mm-hmm. they sold some guns to her and just had some guns. I mean, I don't think they really ever used them, which is weird. And so they're like, yeah, let's rob banks. But then during all of this time, as they're prepping to rob banks, they end up getting bored with it. They're like, you know what? Let's not rob banks. Why don't we do something else? Mm-hmm. Why don't we go into photography? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. So they had this fancy camera. They bought these like lights and these dark room equipment and they just start taking p- photos of each other. That was around the time that they got a ba- like a little dog together and they named it um, Puppet. I was going to say baby. A dog together named puppet okay and they loved that dog myra fucking loved that dog what kind of dog do you know no they would take pictures of that dog everywhere they would take pictures they would hold the dog take pictures they took that dog everywhere myra was obsessed with that dog which later on the dog gets killed um and it just was like this whole thing right and they would take explicit photos of each other which people were shocked by because when myra was growing up she was known to be a prude in her hometown And so they just like really got into all this photography shit up until one day Ian sat down Myra and said, Uh you need to read this book. It's about the perfect murder. Do you know what book? What? The one I talked about, about um, Richard and Nathan Ah, compulsion. But that was not, that was a dumb book. Yeah. They got caught. And so he even explained why they messed up and they can do it better. And so he was like, I really want to do this. I know I can do this. By this point, he had moved in with Myra and Myra was living with her grandma still. So the grandma's living there. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I need to do this so bad. Like, I know exactly how I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to even make sure that I mean, he was very, very OCD about it. Like he would make sure that all of the buttons on their clothes, none of them were ever loose because if they decided to murder someone that day, one of the buttons fell off. It could lead back to them. So he was kind of like paranoid about things like that. And so for months, they were just planning. They were like fantasizing. They would like hold hands, talk about, okay, like how should we dispose of the body? How do we lure them in? But like what kind of victims are we looking for? They would just constantly talk about it. They would literally write about it. They would take pictures of little kids walking around being like, what about that one? You think that's a good victim? Wow. And they, they turned it into like this weird little couples activity they did together, right? And so finally... Finally, they were like, today's the day we're going to go kidnap and kill a kid. Now, 
I know that this is not a good segue, but maybe it is because, I mean, I don't know if it's just me. I just know that the world's crazy. And you guys know recently, well, not even recently, it feels so recent because of all of the anxiety still associated with it. But we had an intruder in our house. And that is probably by far one of the scariest things I've ever experienced. I think it's because, you know, your home is your safe place. Your home is where you can be yourself and be comfortable, which is why I am very solution oriented when it comes to this aspect of my life like I will search for the top of the top security because I'm like I need something that gives me peace of mind did you know every 26 seconds there's a break-in in this country I mean, I don't know how many break-ins that concludes to by the end of this podcast even. But with Simply Safe Home Security, you can protect your whole home around the clock. It's lasting protection and it all takes about a simple 30-minute setup. You'll even get a free security camera when you protect your home today. Simply Safe is an award-winning arsenal of sensors and security cameras that blankets every inch of your house. You'll know that your home and your family members and your little pets are always safe. You set up Simply Safe yourself that was probably my favorite part that was like what sold me because i if you guys know btk blind torture kill he worked for a security company and that's how he got into people's houses because he knew how to tamper with those securities right and so without any tools or writing no technician no salesperson has to step foot into your home into your safe space so then simply safe will monitor your home around the clock with security professionals who are there in case of an emergency to immediately send help to your house best part is there's no crazy contracts there's no hidden fees there's no installation cost and that's why u.s news and world report named simply safe the best overall home security of 2020 you guys know if you guys watch my youtube channels we don't joke about home security so right now you can visit simplysafe.com rotten and get a free security camera plus a 60-day risk-free trial with any new system order there's really nothing to lose so go to simplysafe.com rotten So the plan was a very weird process is that she would drive in a van and he would drive in the motorcycle behind her and they would just drive around town. Now, when they saw an opportunity to kidnap someone who was alone and that they wanted them as a victim, he would flash his headlights. She would stop the car and lure the kid into the van. So it was kind of already established that they wanted someone younger and now someone younger, a little boy, a little girl, they're going to be more inclined to trust an older lady. I mean, she wasn't Mm -hmm. even old, but like a female, they're going to be more inclined to trust a female rather than a guy. So then she would lure that kid into the car Mm -hmm. and then she would come up with this glove theory so there was this place called um i want to say saddleworth more right i want to say saddle ranch because that's a restaurant in la but it's saddleworth more right and they it was just this national park it was huge it was massive there was a lot of different types of terrain and they had this one favorite part that they like to go to Mm -hmm. and it was very very secluded so the plan was that she was going to get the kid in the car and then Mm -hmm. be like hey can you go help me find my glove Mm -hmm. at the more i left it at the morn it's a sentimental glove like i'm gonna you know take you home right after like could you please help me and it was gonna feel like kind of like this give and get because she's giving them a ride home so they feel obligated to help her find that glove and so she would drive to saddle saddle worth mm-hmm. <laughs> to saddle worth and then she would get out with the kid mm-hmm. and he would have pulled up in the motorcycle that was their plan to kidnap why are they taking separate cars because it's easier to trust a lone female than a couple 
Oh, right? I see. And so that was their plan. So she said, okay. So she gets into the van one day and they start looking for victims. Now, the first time that his headlights went off, she kept driving. She didn't want to do it. And so she pulls over a little bit later and Ian Brady's pissed off. He was like, that was the perfect victim. That's the victim I wanted. Why didn't you stop? Right? Uh-huh. And she said, that is literally my mom's neighbor's kid. Like, that's an eight-year-old <sighs> kid. And she was like, He was getting mad. He was like, why does that matter? Like, it doesn't matter. And she was like, no, 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 it's too risky. It's too risky. And then she kind of talked him into the fact that, you know, if an eight-year-old goes missing, it's just going to be so scandalous. People are going to be looking for that eight-year-old. Whereas if you pick someone older, Uh it'll be a lot harder. You know, people are going to say that they ran away, right? And so he was a little bit upset, but he was like, okay, fine. That makes a little bit of sense. And so he gets back onto his motorcycle. She gets back into the van and they start driving. Now around 7.30 p.m., he will flashes headlights and she pulls over the girl that she sees and she knows this person again this is a girl a classmate of her younger sister maureen they're in the same grade i believe and she was walking to the dance because her parents had told her that she's not allowed to go to this dance that her school was having because Mm. they heard rumors that there was gonna be alcohol snuck into the dance so you can't go pauline and so she was like fine i'm gonna walk there i'm gonna pretend like i'm not going but she was gonna walk there right So she was walking by herself and she pulls her over and she's like, oh, my God, Pauline, like, why don't I give you a ride to the dance? Like, that's so dangerous for you to just be walking around. And Uh she was like, I'm Maureen's older sister. So she was like, oh, okay, great. So she gets into the car and that's when she's kind of like, wait, before I take you to the can we just stop by the moor real quick? Because I lost my glove there and it's so expensive and it was just so sentimental. You know, my my grandfather gave it to me. Do you mind? Do you mind? And it seems like Pauline was picking up something weird because she was she's just asked Myra multiple times like are you okay doing this ride because she just seemed really frantic and just like you know didn't know how to handle herself uh-huh. and so finally they arrive at Saddleworth Moor and that's when she's like wait what's that guy doing and it was Ian Brady and she was like oh he's just gonna help me look for my glove don't worry about it and so he approaches them and now this is where we get two different stories so Myra claims that what happened next was that Ian Brady had dragged Pauline into like a secluded area of the moor and now Myra's alone so she didn't know what to do so she just went back into the van and so she's sitting and she's waiting and then finally Ian comes back and is like You want to see her? And so she goes with Ian and she sees that Pauline is laying there with her clothes all disheveled. Like it had been obvious that she was assaulted, Uh um, sexually assaulted. She had cuts to her throat, a four inch incision on her voice box, which means that you you would have to do that with considerable force. That's not even just like slicing someone's throat. That's like really digging in deep. And the worst part is that parts of her jacket were dug into the incision which doesn't really happen naturally. So police later suspect that it was a form of torture because you have this open wound and to dig like zipper parts into it would hurt it more. Oh so God. It, there was, you know, evidence of torture. And Myra claims that she looked at Ian, her boyfriend, and said, did you rape her? And he responded, of course I did. And so they dug a shallow grave and they filled the grave in and they buried Pauline there. Now, Ian Brady, on the other hand, will say that Myra participated in the sexual assault and watched him kill her and strangle her and slice her throat afterwards. 
So he even said that she, Myra, was rageful after the sexual assault, that she even, you know, wanted to take souvenirs like her locket and stuff, which he didn't want because he wanted to commit the perfect murder. He didn't want to, like, be a serial killer and take home shit that would tie them together. And so he said that he had to take Myra off of Pauline's body because she was in, like, this fit of rage. So who can we trust? I would say maybe a little more Myra, but I'm not saying I take Myra's side, uh-huh. but even the judge later will say something very interesting about Myra. Huh. Like the judge will later say that with Ian, they feel that Ian will have no remorse or reform, like no amount of therapy, counseling, anything will get him to be a I guess, quote, normal person. Mm. Whereas Myra, other than being a big fat liar and a wuss, they think that she's maybe not as evil as him, but still evil. Interesting. And so they tortured her while she was dying. It was very obvious. And they later just dug her in a grave. They put the bike in the back of the van and they drove home. That was their perfect murder perfect murder and there was this huge search party that then concluded because pauline she was not the type of kid that would run away like i guess that they had suspected because she's like 16 they were like oh my god this is gonna be amazing right Mm -hmm. but she um she just wasn't that kid Mm -hmm. so people were searching for her they cleaned the van they cut up their clothes that they were wearing that day just in case pauline's blood was on them and then they Mm -hmm. watched it burn while they drank wine and talked about it about the murder Mm -hmm. so you get this idea that this is a really big almost like a relationship bonding moments for them. They're not really necessarily talking about the sexual assault. They're not necessarily talking about how they're excited to do it again. It's almost like when you come back from a really nice date that you go on and you're like, oh, that was a really good date today, right? That's Mm -hmm. kind of the vibe that was happening. And so that carried on for a couple of days up until, again, the accounts are a little bit different, but one of them had stolen about nine pounds from Pauline's pocket. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't know why. They just got really mad at each other. They were like, that's not how we're doing it. Like, the motive is not money. Like, if we start taking shit, like, we're going to get caught. This isn't the perfect thing. You know, why do you have the locket? So it did. It does seem like someone had taken the locket from the crime scene. Mm-hmm. So they actually went back afterwards to bury the locket in the ground. <laughs> yeah. Did but, that, was that a bad move for them? No. Okay. And because it wasn't, the God complex for Ian was just getting insane after the first murder. He was like, see? I am superhuman. I could do something that even this book that praises these two dudes from the 20s from the University of Chicago. You've got this guy who went to Harvard Law School or was about to go to Harvard Law School and he couldn't even get away with murder. But I'm getting away with murder. Like, are you kidding me? He genuinely felt like he was like this crazy, amazing God. And that's when it starts getting weirder. So there was this cop who had actually pulled over Myra while she was driving the van because there was some like the whole thing wasn't legal per se. Like maybe it wasn't registered under her name or something like that. It was a little bit weird. So she wasn't getting pulled over that had anything to do with Pauline. It was literally specifically for the driving of her vehicle. Mm -hmm. So then he takes a liking to Myra, the cop. It's just kind of like, oh, Myra's kind of pretty. So he's like, you know what? I'm actually interested in buying this van. Like, do do you mind if I buy it off of you? But I, I obviously can't give you any money right now because i'm on the job but what if i take you for drinks afterwards and so she was like let me think about it so she goes home and she tells ian brady all of this and he's just having a hoot he's just laughing he's like oh my god like this cop thinks oh my god that's so funny right and so she's like go 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 so she goes and she has drinks with this cop and he just says you know there's something about you i think you'd be really good for the police force to myra 
And so he's like, I'd love to give a recommendation and you could start oh training soon. God. And so she sells the van to him, I believe, and they get a new car or something. And Ian Brady is just loving it so much. He's like, oh, now we're going to have someone on the inside. And on top of that, can you believe it? A police officer wants to buy a car that I murdered someone with? Yeah. Amazing. Like he's just having a hoot. Like he thinks it's the best thing ever. But what he didn't know was that during her police academy trainings, Myra was having an affair with that cop. Wait. Oh, so Myra actually started to... Like that cop. And he has no clue. No clue. So she's doing her little police academy, and she was loving it. Like, it genuinely And the police doesn't know that she has a boyfriend. Wow, that's a complex relationship. Or that she just murdered someone. Right, right. That they're looking for. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so she, I mean, people say that this could have been a turning point if maybe, you know, Myra had stayed with that cop instead. But people also believe that Ian Brady's the type that would set everything on fire and then like go tell the cop that Myra killed Pauline, right? Mm. But um, maybe things would have gone different because she was actually doing really well in the academy. Like, like I said, she was mediocre and everything, but she was genuinely doing pretty well in the academy by all accounts. Okay. So she's loving it. And then Ian Brady somehow found out about this torrid affair and he freaked out and he beat her up. And he banned her from ever seeing the cop, from ever like taking any more courses to become a police officer, just everything. Mm. And it was like a really big turning point, allegedly, in their relationship where he was just now more so forcing the relationship. I see. You know, it seems like Myra was maybe like young and she was like, oh, my God, there's so much fresh meat out there. Right. Mm. But he was just like, no, like if you even think about leaving me, I will literally tell everyone what you've done. And he also had lots of explicit photos of her later on. They would even take pictures on, you know, in the crime scene areas and stuff. So then their next victim came about six months later and his name was John Kilbride. Now, John was a 12 year old boy and he was a super sweet, helpful kid. His favorite thing to do was to go to the local market and they would he would see if there's any like elderly people who would need help bringing their bags to their like vehicle or whatever and mm-hmm. he would get like a couple of coins from that right wow. so that was his favorite thing so he decides to go to the market that day to make some money for his family because he came from a not so well-off family and mm-hmm. that's when Myra offered him a ride home and she was like oh my god it's getting really late like the sun's about to set your parents are gonna be worried and she also was like you know what and because you know you're such a good kid I can even offer you a bottle of sherry alcohol and so this 12 year old boy is like that's kind of cool right Mm -hmm. so he's like okay so he gets into the car Mm-hmm. And she's driving and she's all of a sudden like, oh, my God, wait a second. I can't believe it. I think I've lost my glove at the moor. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, oh, um, the moor. And she's like, yeah, do you, do you mind if we just make a pit stop? Do you mind if you can help me find it? You, you're, you're, you're young. You have better eyes than me. Mm-hmm. Do you mind? And so he's like, um, OK. And so they go to the moor together and they start walking in the moor when all of a sudden a motorbike pulls up and he's like, oh, who's that? And she's like, oh, he's a friend and he's going to help me. And again, Ian drags him away, assaults this 12 year old boy. And now Ian Brady will say that Myra actually held down John Kilbride during the sexual assault. But we don't really know. Now, Ian did forget his knife. So he ended up strangling John with a shoelace. And they buried him. 
Now, there was this huge search that came about. I mean, you had 500 missing persons posters that were set up. You had 700 different statements, whether they were witness statements, possible suspect statements. It was a lot. There was 2,000 volunteers who wanted to look for John Kilbride's body. And Myra was getting so much paranoia from all of this huge searching that she even went to the burial site again with a different rented car to check and make sure that like it didn't look suspicious. So she went to the morgue again and everything looked fine. Now, one of the main suspects, well, there was two main suspects in John Kilbride's disappearance, one Mm -hmm. of them being his stepdad, and there was Mm -hmm. really nothing to look at there, right? And then another one being David Smith. Now, David Smith was a classmate of Maureen, which is Myra's little sister, Uh and for some reason, they just felt like he had something to do with it. This is a small town, huh? Yeah. Everybody knew everybody. Yeah, which we know that he didn't have anything to do with it, but David Smith is a name that's going to come up later, so keep that in mind. David Smith is going to blow the whole lid off of these this duo hmm. yeah and he's also going to be part of the family soon so then keith bennett was their next victim now this was june 1964 and he was another 12 year old boy and he was on his way to grandma's house in manchester and so myra asked him to help load her boxes into her car and then she would drive him to grandma's house and so uh-huh. he said okay now the whole thing happens again with the oh i lost my glove oh then ian arrives and then they sexually assaulted him and then strangled him mm-hmm. now this time they actually took photos of the murder they took photos of keith at the time and this time was a little different because when they got home they didn't celebrate the murder together at all Mm-hmm. So the first two, they would drink wine, they would make a little fire, burn their clothes, and they would giggle and hee hee ha ha. But this time, they were just kind of tired. So what, what does that mean, right? Yeah. So with this one, the suspect was their stepdad again. And this one was really infuriating for a lot of people because he was brought in for questioning a lot. And it was so much to the point where people didn't understand the wife, the mom of Keith Bennett. She threatened to kill herself and all her other kids unless the police would stop. They were doing a lot. They were tearing up their garden, their floorboards. They believed that Mr. Bennett had freaking killed his stepson and buried him somewhere in the house. It was just a lot. And you're saying the mother didn't like Yeah, because the mother said they never even fought. He literally even took, you know, the stepdad's name now. Like, Mm. the stepdad genuinely loved him. Like, you're only doing that because it's not his biological father. Right, right, right. And so she was really mad. And because they were being investigated, of course, most of the community was kind of staying away from Keith Bennett's stepdad. They were just like, oh, we don't know what's going on there. Yeah. So then Maureen gets married. (laughs) So Myra's little sister, she became heavily pregnant. So she was seven months pregnant after this murder. And she was pregnant by a guy, you guessed it, David Smith. So he was investigated for John Kilbride's murder, but he impregnated Maureen. And it didn't seem like they necessarily loved each other. But Mm -hmm. because back in the day, you can't really do that. They decided to elope. Now, none of Maureen's family would go to the wedding. Not even Myra. Because they didn't approve the fact that she was seven months pregnant. And finally, after quite some time, both the couples met. So Maureen and David Smith met Ian Brady and Myra, right? Mm -hmm. So the sisters are like, let's go on a double date. Now, Ian instantly likes David. He felt like David was mature for his age. And David 
David really liked Ian. David kind of looked up to Ian. He was like 10 years older. He mm-hmm. always dressed so sophisticated. He he looked, you know, fancy. He talked fancy. You know, all of David's friends, they talk about bullshit. But Ian Brady would talk about society, the distri- the mm. distribution of wealth. You know, how the banks work, how the banks are ruining everyone. He would talk about all these shit. So he's like, wow, wow, my brother-in-law so cool. Mm -hmm. Right. And Myra was kind of jealous. She was like, wow, Ian really likes this dude. And she was getting really jealous. Now, nobody knows if it's because maybe Ian Brady was bisexual and he had attraction to men and women. Uh, Right. Or whether it just had to do with the fact that, you know, how some girls are like, you can't spend time with the boys. Spend time with me. We don't really know which one of that it was. Right. And it kind of fed into Ian's superiority complex because David would also always be like, Wow, Ian, I didn't know that. Like, that's so cool. Like, and he would just kind of follow him around like a little lost puppy. Now, David himself had a lot of issues. He's had a criminal record since he was young. He had a little bit of like a identity crisis because he was being raised by his grandma for most of his life. And his grandma, he known he knew her to be his mom, I believe, or something like that. No, uh-huh. in the beginning. And then later he finds out it's his grandma. Long story, right? <laughs> and so the way that he found out that his mom is alive... His biological mom is alive. So when he got older, his grandma told him that his mom died. And that's why, you know, his mom never visits him because Uh she's dead. You know, that's why. And that makes sense, you know. But then one day his schoolmates were like, wait, why are you getting free school meals? Uh Like you're on the free school meal program, which is weird because aren't you and your grandma doing okay? Like, are you guys having financial issues? You know, why are you on the free school meals program? And he was like, wait, why am I on the free school meals program? Right. And so he went home and he asked his grandma and it's because his mom is alive and his mom was under a certain income range. Okay. So that's why he got on the free school meals plan. I mean, it's really confusing, but the way he found out wasn't anyone sitting him down and being truthful. It was literally him finding out at school that he was on like a free lunch program and then came home and asked his grandma and his grandma was like, your mom's not dead. She's just poor and not visiting you. What and so yeah that started like a lot of crime in david's life i'm laughing because i that was like the shittiest explanation i've ever given in my entire life uh-huh. <laughs> but um yeah it's really sad okay so he was just he had a criminal record too. keep that in mind now during this time they would move once um because there was like this post-war slum clearance so they moved houses there was this new neighbor she was 11 years old her name was patricia hodges and they befriended her just a lot it was weird i mean it's really unhealthy to be just a older couple and your best friend's an 11 year old kid that's not your niece right Mm -hmm. and so this was like her bff myra would always hang out with patricia would take her around and now patricia the only reason she was never assaulted or murdered by the couple was because she lived nearby and it would just lead them to them right so she was just always known the couple to be like kind of sweet she would always bring patricia to the moor one time one time myra brought Patricia Hodges to a very specific spot in the moor. And she asked, why? And she said, I just like the soil here. And she grabbed some soil from the moor and brought it back and started gardening with that soil. So people think that's psychologically so strange because it's almost like taking soil from your victim's gravesite to mm-hmm. then plant fucking flowers in. What does that even mean? Yeah, yeah. 
Now, December 1964, there was this little fun fair going around, okay? And that's when they saw Leslie Downey. And she was a 10-year-old girl who was alone, it seemed, at the little area. And they pretend to drop their shopping bags. The couple, Myra and Ian. Uh-huh. They drop their shopping bags and they're like, oh my God, let me pick this up. And, you know, Leslie being the nice well-mannered 10-year-old, she comes over and just helps these strangers pick up their bags. Uh And she's, like, really proud of herself. And then Myra's like, do you mind if you help me take it to the car? I can pay you for your time. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, okay. So she helps them bring it to the car. And she's like, do you mind helping me bring it into my house? Mm -hmm. I can pay you for it. And she's like, "Um, okay. So she goes home with them. And this time is a little bit different because Ian was getting sick. He felt like he wasn't as excited for the murders at the moor anymore because he didn't want to do it at the moor. He wanted it in the privacy of his own home. Mm -hmm. So they brought her home. It's just going to get weirder. It's going to get more mysterious. Now, here's one thing that I always thought would remain a mystery, but it is no more. There's so much about fertility that's a complete mystery. I mean, it's kind of crazy. And the fact that my sister is pregnant for the first time and I'm like being reminded almost on a daily basis. And now you guys are too, because I bring it up every day. Um, (laughs) What is my fertility? Like I'm getting older. That's where modern fertility hormone test comes in. What is fertility test? So a fertility test, honestly, I would recommend it to honestly any female out there you learn about the hormones in your body about how many eggs that you have all of these things which can help make for smarter decisions think of your fertility hormones as tiny little detectives they can bring you a lot of insight on your egg count your reproductive timeline and even possible outcomes for egg freezing and ivf everything you need to know to get proactive about your fertility it's the easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home i always thought it was like just this crazy concept it's like this mysterious thing in your body and like you have this timeline but really what's your timeline and what's that even mean right and you can learn all of that with a simple finger prick in the comfort of your home you mail in that with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days so the way that it works is you get insight about how many eggs you have your hormone levels and other important fertility factors the results go deep into what every hormone means and you can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to review your results and options for any next future steps traditional testing with a doctor just to get a fertility test is over a thousand dollars which people are like that seems like a luxury right but modern fertility only costs 159 dollars to get the same exact information and if you go to modernfertility.com rotten right now you can get 20 dollars off of your test Also, just want to make a side note. If you guys have HSA or FSA, you can use those dollars on Modern Fertility. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash rotten. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or or thousands of dollars it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash rotten. The grandma was in home at this time so they bring leslie downey home and she's 10 years old by the way keep that in mind they decide to undress her gag her and have her pose for nude suggestive pictures child pornography essentially and then they proceeded to assault her and then strangled her with the string now this time they did something a little bit different though they recorded 16 minutes 
an audio recording, which would later be played in court. Oh my and there, this one was really nasty because this happened around Christmas. So there was Christmas music playing in the background while little Leslie was begging for her life, asking for her mommy. And they would say things like, shut up, we're just trying to get pictures. And they would, you know, do all these weird things and they would try to make her pose exactly the way that they wanted it and they would say things like put your arm down or i'll slit your throat at first they were like you know we're not gonna we're not gonna murder you we're just trying to get pictures and she was crying and she was screaming and she was just begging for her life and then eventually they did strangle her with an electrical cord now what's very interesting is that again we've got two separate stories so myra says that she went to go fill a bath You know, he said, you know, I want to give Leslie a bath. So why don't you go run some water? So she went to go allegedly run some water. And when she came back, Leslie was dead. That was her story. Now, Ian, on the other hand, said that Myra killed her, that Myra was upset for some reason and was in a fit of rage. And she grabbed the electrical cord and strangled Leslie Downey. We don't really know which one's the truth. Now, Mm -hmm. later, they would wash her body and then bring her to the moor where they buried everybody else. And they would also bury her with the rest of their victims. She was buried completely naked with clothes down at her feet. And it was a very, very shallow grave. Now, there was a huge search that resulted in the disappearance of Leslie Downey, but she was never found, obviously. And this was around the time that, you know, he just decided, I don't really like killing people. It's just not that fun. You know, when I when there was so much risk of getting caught, when I was like, oh, my God, am I going to get away with murder? It was so exciting. It was like this thing that we do as a couple. But now... I'm just bored and I'm not really getting anything out of it. I should do things that I benefit from. I should rob banks or something. I should become a thief. Like, what am I doing? Like, am I really getting something out of this? Mm -hmm. Like, he was just like, I'm not going to kill any more people. So around that time, that's when David Smith started coming over a lot. So there was a lot going on with David Smith. They had lost their kid, like something happened to their kid with Maureen. And so he was going through a lot, too. So he would just come over to Ian and Myra's all the time and they would just read books. They would read books about murder, about robberies. And he, Myra was just kind of getting upset. She just didn't like this relationship. And she would say to some people she didn't like it because she was jealous Mm -hmm. because she really likes Ian. And then to some people, she would say that it was just too risky. Like it was just going to get them caught because Ian was opening up too much to David. Mm -hmm. And so David would even, you know, try planning bank robberies for them together. They'd be like, okay, we're going to study everything about this bank. They would write about like a bunch of notebooks about the bank, like what time, which employees work where and how to get into the vaults and all of these things. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's when Ian was like you know what you're kind of cool why don't we do something different from bank robberies i mean i've done a lot you know what i've done right and he's like no and he's like i've raped people and i've murdered people and david's like okay sure and he's like what do you mean what do you mean okay sure david's like okay let's just focus on this bank no i've killed people before so his stupid ego is coming in okay sure so he's like are you kidding i even have proof in a suitcase that i've hidden away from the house and inside this suitcase i can prove to you that i've killed people you know when i took you to the moor like a year ago Uh i've you were literally standing on a gravesite i've killed people you don't understand i've killed people and david is like okay sure and so he's kind of upset by this so ian's like what the 
fuck? Why doesn't he believe me? Oh my God, I'm getting so mad, right? Mm -hmm. So he decides to go to Manchester Railway Station, which he just had a thing for railways, right? And inside of this railway station, he had always kind of like left a suitcase that you can log it in with people. So he would get a little ticket for it. And it was a suitcase, two suitcases actually, filled with stuff. I mean, it was filled with like knives that was used to kill people. It was filled with pictures, their illicit pictures, you know, other little small things and all about like it had all the proof about the murders if there was any to be found it was there and so uh, people think that he went there for the purpose of grabbing those suitcases so that he could bring it to David Smith and be like look I told you I've killed people right but around that same time he met Edward Evans who was a 17 year old he was an apprentice engineer and there's a rumor that they actually knew each other because they've frequented a gay bar together but I'm not too sure about that one Uh so Edward Evans was on his home on his way home from a football game that he had attended alone Uh and that's when he runs into Ian so Ian's like oh my gosh this is perfect instead of showing him the suitcases i'm gonna literally show him the person i'm about to murder so this is good so he decides to just lure edward evans into his house on the prospect of just drinking some beer together right Mm -hmm. and he gets into the car now myra was waiting in the car and immediately when he gets there he says oh meet myra this is my sister so she's like yeah i'm a sister so they get into the car they drive home which by the way is grandma's home and grandma is home this time and they start drinking some wine together and that's when ian is like hey myra go get david right Mm -hmm. and she said that she was immediately annoyed by this because she knew what was about to happen and she felt like this was compromising her freedom Mm -hmm. and so she gets david now around this time it's 11 p.m and everyone's practically asleep so she's like i need a good reason to knock on the door because my sister's gonna be like why do you need my husband at 11 p.m right so she like knocked on the door her sister woke up and is like myra like what are you doing here and she said Grandma says she can't see you for the next couple of days because she's feeling sick, but you can come over next week. She's like, what? That's so random. Like, you really needed to wake me up at this time? Uh And she's like, yeah, you know how old people are. Grandma told me to tell you. Anyway, um, can you have David walk me back home? Because I I ran into some people. It's scary out there. Uh And so Maureen's like, "Okay, David, can you walk my sister home? Uh So they're walking home together. And this is where literally the story gets weird. So the whole couple, Myra and Ian, they claim that David Smith knew why he was coming over. And he they said that David was excited about murdering someone for the first time. So they're making it sound like David was like, it's finally the time that we're going to murder people. Woo. Yeah, let me go. Right. Whereas David has a completely different story. So I'm going to tell you David's story. Right. Because it's a little bit longer. So he gets outside. He walks Myra to her house and Myra says oh hold on outside I'm gonna go grab a bottle of wine for you to take home for my sister right Uh she's been talking about this wine and so he's waiting outside the house when all of a sudden he hears this like blood piercing scream so he rushes inside and he sees Ian holding a hatchet over a dude and he just watches him drop the hatchet onto his skull multiple times and then Ian throws the hatchet to the side and then strangles Edward to death what the fuck and he said it just made him feel so sick now at that point he's like oh my god they're serious right so what he decided to do was just go along with it because he doesn't want to be the next victim right now and it's like the middle of the night uh-huh and so he's like oh my god oh my god oh my god now during all of this of the hatchet killing and the strangling ian had sprained his ankle so he's like fuck i can't walk on this ankle it hurts a lot and so they're like what do we do what do we do like edward was too heavy for david smith to carry to the car on his own because they're trying to bury him at the moor right 
right? Uh-huh. And it would need two dudes to carry him because he's 17 and he's a little buff, right? So they're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. What do we do? What do we do? And now this is when David said that Myra was just so excited. She didn't even care about any of that. He says that she was like, did you hear? Did you hear the noise when his head hit the floor? Oh my God. Did you see the fear in his eyes? Like she was talking like that. I mean, she claims that never happened, but weird and so then that's when ian and myra are like hey david go to the kitchen and get some paper towels and they started cleaning the blood off the walls and he said that myra was just casually picking up pieces of like flesh and skull off the ground while just like casually talking about like oh my god like that was so cool and he was like what the fuck grandma's not awakened no i believe she woke up briefly and they were like it's okay grandma it's nothing and she like went back to her room and so then they wrapped edward's body in plastic and placed him into the spare room that they had like a little key for and locked him in there so the new plan was that david was going to come the next day with the baby like a stroller thing and they were going to place edward's body onto the stroller to move to the car because you know david can't carry him alone so he's like okay that's a good idea so then he goes home david goes home to go sleep because he can't be suspicious so he gets home around 3 a.m and his wife marine is like what the heck why'd that take so long like you were just walking my sister home yeah. and he says can you make me a cup of tea so she goes to make a cup of tea and before he can even take a sip he goes to the bathroom and just like vomits non-stop and then he finally sits down and he tells her everything Now, at first, Maureen didn't believe it, but he was like, listen, I'm telling you the truth. Then she's like, "Okay, then we have to go call the police. And he's like, well, we don't have a landline. You know, how do we call the police? And we can't go to the closest payphone because it's it's too dark out there right now. And I'm scared that they're following me home to make sure nothing's going to go wrong. So they're waiting, waiting, just staying up all night. And finally, the sun comes up. People are moving around. So at 6, 10 a.m., she grabs a screwdriver. He grabs a bread knife and they walk to the local phone box and they call 911. Holy fuck. So the police pick him up. They drive him to the station and he tells them everything. He's like, I think the grave sites are somewhere. I don't know where it is. I mean, I, we've been to multiple places. Maybe it's at the moor. Maybe it's here. Oh, I think he has some suitcases somewhere. He never mentioned where, but he said he has proof in suitcases. I mean, just everything. And so the police are like, holy shit. So they get like just a squadron of police. Now, only one of them approaches the door because when you are talking about ambushing a serial killer, typically it's not going to be like a whole team at once right because they don't want them to run or anything so they're just trying to get into the house so Uh a guy a police officer dresses up as a fake bread delivery dude and he approaches the house and he asks myra if his husband is home and she says nope i don't even have a husband and he says okay if you want to play it that way i'm a cop so let me in so then he enters the house and he said it was just so weird ian was just sitting in the living room and didn't even look up at the cop now by the time that he had already made it inside the police officer all the other surrounding police are like go 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 so they were kind of like storming inside the house right yeah and so now there's like lots of police people in his house yeah and he's just not even caring what he's just writing a letter to his boss about his ankle injury and why he can't come to work for the next couple of days 
And that he is won't weird. look up. Now the cops start searching the house and the one room that they can't open is the spare room. Now uh-huh. they're like, where's the key to the spare room? And Myers, Myers like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I left it at work. Maybe it's at work. And the police are like, where do you work? We can take you to work right now while some people stay here. We can take both of you to work and then you can go find that key and bring it back. And she's like, maybe I didn't leave it at work. Maybe I left it at my, my sister's house. I don't, I don't know, right? And I guess Ian was getting annoyed and he knew that at the end they would get that room door open. Yeah. So he said, Myra, just open it. So then she opened it and they immediately arrested Ian. Now, Ian tells the police that he got into a fight with Edward and it was kind of self-defense. It kind of got out of hand, but it just didn't make sense because police looked at Edward's body. He was stabbed over 14 times and strangled. That's definitely not a fight that gets out of hand when you're drunk. Right. So it initially, I mean, it was a shit show. So for like the next five days, Myra was completely free. She she was not arrested. She begged her boss to fire both her and Ian so that they could get unemployment checks. <laughs> and that didn't end up working. I mean, it was weird. Myra was questioned and she said, anything Ian says is the truth, okay? And if you want to talk about a murder, it's all David Smith. David is guilty. For some reason, she just really hates David still and she wants him to go down for everything. And finally they start searching the house they find a lot of weird things like they found a book with just john kilbride's name written over and over and over again in a creepy way so they were like oh my god he's probably connected to john kilbride too and all these other kids that have gone missing right Mm. it's not just edward Mm -hmm. so they start freaking out and that's when they're like okay we need to talk to david again and he's like like i said there's these suitcases i don't know where they are probably some sort of railway stations they you know placed it at manchester central railway station and they were able to get two suitcases out that was under their names and there was a lot in there there was costumes there were photographs of myra like just explicit photographs you know there were um just like photographs of her standing on graves but they don't know that it's graves yet so it was Mm. her standing at the same place in the park every time and there was one photo where she was holding her dog and looking down at the ground but it wasn't in like an instagram model way it was just really weird Mm -hmm. so they're like okay these are weird right there was a black wig in there there were many knives in there there was the 16 minute audio tape and nine pictures of leslie in there and they actually showed it to leslie's parents for it to be identified oh my gosh there was a little notebook called Guide to Murder with a couple tips that they had written down. And there were like very strange drawings of fields and like words like stone by the river. So they felt like it was a like a marking of a gravesite, stone by the river. You know, it's just yeah. weird. Nobody just writes that down. And so they're like, okay, this is really bad. So then they actually get Patricia Hodges who comes in, the 11-year-old that they were friends with. Mm -hmm. And she had said something about how they always take her to the moor. And they said that that's like they have a favorite spot in the moor. So they're like, okay, let's start looking. So that's when they start digging. And this is going to take quite some time. Now, during that time, Ian ends up writing a letter to Myra. And I mean, it's just like the most loving letter ever in the sickest way. He compares them to a famous Nazi couple. And he's like, I love you so much. You know what we remind me of? Like this Nazi couple. Hashtag couple goals, relationship goals. And then he even writes, I love you in German to her in this letter. And so people suspect it's probably to keep Myra quiet because she hasn't been arrested yet. Right. Mm. And so around that time, they decided, okay, like we're 
just going to arrest her for being an accomplice to murder at first Mm -hmm. until they digged up Leslie and John. So they still to this day haven't found um, they haven't found Pauline, which was their first first victim, and then Keith Bennett. But they digged up two bodies. So they were like, "Okay, this is bad. Mm -hmm. So they arrest her and they were both charged with three counts of first degree murder for Edward, Leslie and John. Hmm. Now, Ian's whole thing in the beginning was that, oh, my God, I didn't kill Leslie. It was just like a like I was getting commissioned for child porn. I was just getting paid to produce child porn. And eventually he gave that up when they confronted him with the 16 minute torture tape. And it just was really strange. So the reason that the dog ends up getting murdered is that the police needed to date the photographs. And what does that mean? Because the photographs didn't have dates on them. And in order to get like the best evidence, they need to date all of the photographs that they took at the moor because there's so many. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that was always in the photographs was the dog. Mm-hmm. And so they felt like if they could pinpoint how old the dog is now and the stages of how they grow and how they age for that specific dog breed, then they can pinpoint around what time that those pictures were taken. And so the vet put the dog under general anesthesia to x-ray the teeth to get an estimate on the age of the dog. But the dog never woke up. And the the police said that this was the first emotion that Myra ever showed. This was her only emotion, really, was when she was crying for the loss of her dog. Now, a lot of people in the UK, including Myra herself, nobody's siding with Myra. Nobody thinks, oh, my God, Myra, we love you, right? But a lot of people do suspect that the police were under a lot of pressure and they wanted Myra to confess against Ian Brady, and she wasn't, because uh-huh. that's usually how it goes when there's a duo, right? Uh-huh. And so they thought that if they killed her dog, it was like a power play. Like, look, I can kill your dog and I can kill you, too, so you better talk. They suspect that? Yeah, and they suspect it because Myra was just singing like a canary about it. She was like, the police murdered my dog. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that one. Anyways, so then the trial starts. They played the entire 16-minute torture tape. It was a lot for the jury. It was a lot for even police officers who heard it. They said that they can't even... One of them was interviewed and said that they can't listen to Christmas songs anymore. It was just so horrendous and terrifying. And they're just traumatized. And so David, he was the star witness. (laughs) Ian testified for eight hours. And he thought he did a splendid job. But the jury actually said that he was an arrogant asshole the whole time myra henley she testified it for six plus hours and she just made excuse after excuse she was like oh when he strangled the other kid i was like looking out the window i didn't see it so i couldn't have stopped it oh when he was killing leslie i was drawing a bath so i did i didn't see it and i couldn't stop it and everyone's like you're a little bitch ass wuss because you're the one that lured these kids in in the first place so it doesn't matter if you didn't see the murders right and it was such a controversial trial because people were attracted to the sick Bonnie and Clyde esque nasty serial killers they're like what is wrong with these people and a lot of the times I mean it's the same with true crime like you get attracted to just nasty cases because you just can't comprehend it right so the press was all over it during the entire trial they would have to have decoys so from the jail they would put random people walking out with police with a blanket over their head and the press would follow that person to a different courthouse but then the real the real ian and myra would be like next and they would go to a different one like they would literally just have all these decoys going to different courthouses so that the press wouldn't just flood them nonstop. 
Wow. And the trial ended with Ian Brady being charged with three counts of murder and Myra Henley with two. Now, months before their trial, the death sentence was abolished. So they got life in prison. And the judge said that they are truly horrible, two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity, wicked beyond belief. And the judge claimed that they saw no reform for Ian. There was no way that he could become a regular functioning human. And for Myra, maybe out of the influence of Ian Brady, maybe, but still, she lied remorselessly. Mm. So that's what they said about her. Mm. Now, when they were sent to prison, they were both attacked a lot. (laughs) attacked by other inmates because i mean they were at the bottom of the totem pole so when usually you go to prison and you're a child rapist or a child killer like you're just gonna get forked up like that's i mean i'm not saying that in a happy way (laughs) where am i i'm kidding um (laughs) ian was put on solitary confinement for the rest of his life and he would do hunger strikes hunger strikes to the point where he would have to be (laughs) tube fed tube fed because he wanted to see myra he said if i don't get to see myra i'm gonna just starve myself and so they would have to tube feed him a lot which also was so much controversy because everyone in the uk was like you're tube feeding him off of our tax dollars let the forker die Mm -hmm. like what are you talking about why why am i feeding this dude right and then david smith on the other hand he was offered immunity for his testimony and he received like this newspaper deal for 20,000 pounds he took a vacation to France with his family with it and people were just absolutely disgusted nobody bought his story everyone thought that he was just as bad as them because it just was weird all of it was creepy and he's also like part of the family too so it just made it worse right and he would also even get some prison time not for that crime because he had immunity but there were so many haters who would just follow him around like being like you're scum you're a murderer you're just as nasty you're the most evil vile human and so he would carry oh. around a knife and one day he stabbed a hater. He went to jail for three years and that's when Maureen divorced him. And then he came out of jail. He got arrested for attempted murder because his dad was terminally ill. Mm-hmm. He like befriended his dad again. They were on like bad terms, but now they're on good terms. And his dad was terminally ill and he was in a lot of suffering. So he tried to kill his dad because his dad asked him to. It was weird. And then Maureen died at the young age of 35. A lot of people think it's from just everything that happened. Holy shit. Yeah. Now, Maureen, on the other hand, she was attacked a lot in prison as well, but she was never given solitary confinement. She was always given a personal guard for whatever reason. And that's when she fell in love with a personal guard. Um, Her name was Patricia. She was a prison guard and they had... A relationship they started a relationship together and so patricia the prison guard concocted this plan to help her escape prison what but the then she fuck? was caught because i mean you're gonna get caught right and so then patricia the prison guard now had to spend six years in oh prison for trying to let myra out and that's when myra wrote a letter to ian saying that hey listen i know you love me i know you're like starving yourself because you want to see me but like i'm having an affair with a prison guard just like fyi and he got so mad that he turned on her and he went to the police and he confessed to the murders of pauline and keith bennett 
And he even implicated Myra because all of this time, I mean, he just kind of like sat there and was like, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. But this time he was like, oh, by the way, she's the one that killed this person and this person and this person. And he just turned on her. And now at this point, Myra is like, well, I don't want to go through another trial and I'm already in prison for the rest of my life. So she just confessed to them, too. She was like, yeah, I killed them. And then because she doesn't get anything worse. Yeah. Right. And so she actually helped lead them to find Pauline's body. Huh. And um yeah, Keith's body was never found. So Myra Henley, she then proceeded to allegedly have an affair with Rose West, Rosemary West, another prolific serial killer in Britain. Jesus. Yeah, before she died at the age of 60 years old in 2002. Now, Ian, he would live a lot longer. He would be 79 when he died from lung disease. And his dying wish was that those suitcases full of evidence uh-huh. would never see the light of day, would never be released to the public. Nothing inside of that would ever be released. Now, the police, for whatever freaking reason, they obliged. And none of that has ever been released. And that caused a lot of hurt and anger for Keith's family because they're like, what if there's evidence in there? We yeah. just want his body found. Keith Bennett's mom's dying wish was she wants her boy to come home so that she can give him a proper burial. But she passed before that could happen. I mean, it still hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. And that is the story of I would quite for some reason, you know, I I don't like to compare, but I think it's very interesting that this is actually probably more hated than Fred and Rosemary. West, yeah, why is couple. that? I'm not it's sure. More media attention. Yeah, I guess there is like this weird evilness to it Mm. that we don't understand. I think with Fred and Rosemary, there is some weird power play. There is obviously lots of sexual motivations. Mm -hmm. But for this one, it's like, did they really kill five kids to just prove that they could? Yeah. And that is the story of the Moors murders. Um, That's why they're known as the Moors murders, because most of the victims were buried in the Moors. But... Yeah, I see. Let me know your thoughts. I mean, is this creepier? Is it creepier to have a serial killer with something maybe you could understand? Not that we understand like these sexual motivations, but maybe we can relate it to things. We're like, okay, like, yeah, we've seen a lot of that. But this one's just purely like, I want to see if I can do it. I will never get back my pure thoughts before learning about 120 days of Sodom. I hope you guys enjoyed this Halloween episode and I will see you guys in November, which we're going to have a lot darker cases. I don't know what it is, but something when the sun sets early, I like to just explore the dark depths of true crime and I'll see you guys probably on Halloween day. (laughs) Bye.